Well, we are in the second week of our series in the Gospel of Mark. If you missed last week, you can always go back. Don't panic. A lot of context happens in the first uh, sermon of any new series. So if you missed that, you can always go back, podcast, and YouTube and find that there to listen through it again. Uh, I can already tell you the struggle in this series is going to be what makes the cut, what makes it on a Sunday morning, and what sort of uh, just gets relegated to either a Sunday night or just, uh, hey, read that in your own home, uh, homework time, uh, because we're not going to cover every verse in Mark. The goal is to just take us through Christmas, so we're going to have to move a little bit quickly. But the text that I've chosen today, I think, is a very powerful text. It's, it's, a, uh, it's busy. It's got a lot of action. But it's also a strong picture of the mind. You can see it happening in your mind. In Mark chapter 2, a scene is set in a home for uh, really themes of desperation and faith. You're going to see also the beginning of the controversy with the religious leaders and Jesus kicks off this week. As I thought about a contemporary illustration that's happened that we can all think about and picture in our minds to uh, give us some picture of the desperation of the scene today. I really didn't want to use this example because it's still fresh and we're all kind of still angry about it, Uh, but I just couldn't think of a better example. So here we are. Uh, If you've had a TV in the last month or two, you you know exactly what I'm talking about, the chaotic scene at the Kabul airport in Afghanistan. Um, So as the United States sought to end our war with Afghanistan, it became clear that the Afghan army would not resist and fight, and that the Taliban were quickly taking over. A series of decisions led to an exit strategy, I'm being diplomatic here, y'all, that I can only uh, describe from a a civilian perspective with what I see on the news. uh, With I, I would just describe the whole scene with, if you can just make it to the airport, you could maybe get out. Is that fair? Is that sort of what the drawdown was like for most people there? If you can make it to the airport, Maybe you can get out. The, the Kabul airport became the only hope of escape for American citizens, Afghan allies, and translators, and probably now we're finding out anyone who could bully their way onto an airplane. Scenes shocked the world as cargo planes full triple their capacity of occupants, taxied down the runway with thousands of people standing on the airport runway, running beside moving planes, with some even holding on to the planes as it took off. The word desperation certainly comes to mind when we think of this in recent history. There was a chaotic, I will do whatever it takes mindset to get to the airport present. Uh, that, that airport came to symbolize safety and hope and a chance to escape the Taliban and perhaps a chance to go to America. All of these things were on the table. The window of salvation opened in a dark place and people acted Accordingly, as Jesus entered a home in Capernaum to teach the people, no, this was not the final drawdown of a 20-year military uh, conflict in a terrorist-infested city. No. So it's not a perfect example. However, the ability of Jesus to heal disease, to cast out demons, created a stir in a crowd that we're not used to seeing in our day, in our civilized Western society. Generally speaking, in our culture, generally, people stand in lines. They wait their turn. They try not to speak over one another. They don't press in on the public speaker. Thank you. Need a little moat here, all right? 
just so you know, if anyone ever goes to those steps, it's game time, okay? I just don't ever go past these steps. There's a moat here, all right? So sometimes, though, there's a level of desperation that sets in. Things can change quickly. Now, I want you to imagine at the highlight of that frenzy in, uh, in the airport, as people were desperately trying to get on those airplanes, that the pilot comes out. This is crazy, all right? I'm just describing it. Picture this. The pilot steps out of the plane in that scene and says to the people, your sins are forgiven. And, that, and he just kind of walks away. That would be very strange in a moment like that, right? It would be strange. And then let's make it even weirder. Let's say the people shout back, hey, wait a minute. You don't have the authority to forgive sin. Wouldn't that be just a weird story if we thought of it like that? I think we could all agree that's a strange twist. But it's not that far from what actually happens in Mark chapter 2. Because in the midst of the story on desperation and faith and a miracle, we learn that's not even the point of the story. Today's message is actually about the authority of Jesus, not just to heal, but to forgive sin with the authority of God. So before we look at God's word, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come again to hear from you today, Lord. I pray that you would move mightily in this place. Go beyond what I've prepared, Lord. Make this word lodge in a heart. Pierce through. Teach us something today about you, God. Convict us of sin where it needs to be convicted. Give us grace where grace needs to be given. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So a little context from we picked off last week because I'm going to have to do this every week because I'm not preaching every text, okay? So uh, last week we left off in Mark 1. We covered John the Baptist, the baptism of Jesus, the temptation in the wilderness, the core message of repent and believe, and that's where we left. Now, after this, in the in-between, a couple things happened. Jesus selected some disciples. The fishermen disciples got picked. Peter, Andrew, James, and John on the water. Follow me. They left the nets and followed him. Then he begins teaching and healing in this city of Capernaum. Now, Mark 1.22 is an extremely important piece of context for today's message. So I'm going to actually read that, Mark 1.22. Listen how, on Mark's comments of people responding to Jesus. All right, Mark 1.22 says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had, what's that word? Authority. Not as the scribes. Not as the scribes. Now, that's important. His teaching was blowing minds. Probably, yes, he's a really good teacher. But mainly because he taught with authority. He wasn't making conjecture. He wasn't giving a talk. Can I pet peeve right quick with you? There's a, there's a, there's a thing now where preachers and, and are, are calling their things talks. And can I just give a talk? Like, preach a sermon, man. Come on. So... Anyway, that was free. All right. He was, he was not just reciting law codes. He wasn't just reading from a book. He wasn't just going through the Lifeway curriculum and just checking the box and just mono-droning through the, the top of the page. And I know none of y'all do that, so that was just for somebody else. That was another church. So the contrast given by Mark is not like the scribes. The implication is the scribes don't teach with authority. They just read from the Old Testament. They just quote 
things other rabbis say. But Jesus spoke as if he was an authoritative person. It was the difference between, you know, talking to the cashier at the store and talking to the manager. There's a difference. You know, when you talk to the cashier, and I don't know, I'll see what I can do for you. When the manager shows up, they got those keys jingling on their hip, and you can hear them coming down the hallway, and there they're coming. You know, they kind of stomp with a little bit of authority, right? That's the, that's the difference between a cashier and a manager. So, file that away in your mind. Take that, file it in the cabinet. After casting out a demon and healing a man with leprosy and preaching with authority, at the end of Mark 1 and verse 45, we're told, Jesus cannot any longer go out in public places and do these things. The crowds have... have prohibited him from having a normal public preaching existence. They were causing him to go to desolate places, and people had to come out to him. So time passes by. He, he has a little hideout, and he returns back to Capernaum. That's where we start today. Read with me Mark 2, 1 through 12. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. So there's three lessons that I want, I believe, that we can take away from this great text. Number one. Jesus loves persistent faith. Jesus loves persistent faith. And as, as a pastor, you have opportunities to counsel people and to talk to people. After a while, you can sort of pick up themes in people, in your church, in your community. Many Christians struggle with how persistently they are to pray for something or how often they are to go to God with their needs or what kind of questions are appropriate to bring before God. I've just got to say, even, that, even though I know that in this story, the main point is the response to the scribes. That's, that's the main point later. There is still something we can glean from the persistent faith of the paralytic and his friends. So Jesus is at a home. Some scholars believe this was maybe his adult home. Most scholars think this is maybe Peter's home. The city was Capernaum, literally translated village of Nahum. Never heard that, learned that this week. It was a city on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. News traveled, Jesus was back. There was a scene manifesting as the crowd is filling the house. The 
windowsills were full. They're hanging over the windowsills. It's past the door. It's out. Overflow space. Jesus is preaching the word to this crowd with authority. Verse 3 tells us four men were carrying a paralytic. Now, the Greek word is paralyticos. Sounds like the word, right? It does not distinguish between paraplegic, quadriplegic, so we just have to guess. Probably all his limbs were, were not working because it took four men to carry him. Now, you have to put your, yourself in this man's shoes, I think, for a second to feel the desperation. I want you to think. You spent your whole life on a glorified yoga mat, living off of charity, with minimal use of your body. In the first century before modern science, think about living that way every single day of your life. And then there's talk of a man who may be the Messiah, and you're hearing that there's confirmed cases of people seeing him cast out demons, heal a leper completely, instantly, and many other sick people are made well just by touching him. And then you hear, this man is just down the road from you. Now, if you're paralyzed, what are you going to do? The realistic answer is whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. The window is open. This is the shot that you've probably daydreamed about your whole life. But you also know Jesus travels a lot. Because of the crowds, it's tough. He moves a lot. Verse 4 says they tried to get near Jesus. So he's, he's got four friends that are willing to do this for him. They try to get near Jesus, but they could not make it in the house. Imagine how chaotic this scene must have been, that four men on the same team could not bully their way through a crowd, and that this crowd had little compassion to let the paralyzed man through. So what did they do? Did they give up? Did they go home? Did they call the day and say, we tried, we tried. How often in life do we give up after just one hardship, one mean comment made to us, one discouragement, one setback? How easy would it have been for this paralytic to just say, ah, forget it. It's too much trouble to get to Jesus. I've lived my whole life like this already. What's well, a few more years? Church, sometimes the greatest joys in life are right on the other side of a hill called persistent faith. How many great potential joys of life are cast aside because it's going to take some effort, some pushing through the crowd, some climbing stairs, some scratching on the roof? Maybe that's what's most needed in the next season of your life, more of an unwavering pursuit of Jesus and being near him. Are we willing to pursue him even when life's not rolling out the red carpet for us to do so, even when it's not the pristine conditions to do so? Maybe you need to change some of your friends in life. Do you got any friends like that? Four friends that will carry you to be near Jesus, or are they carrying you away from Jesus? Verse 4 tells us what they did. They went up on the roof. Nobody would have been on the roof because if the goal was to hear the preaching, you wouldn't hear the preaching through the roof, so there was nobody up there. The goal was to get inside. And in those days, roofs were like the lounging area of the ancient world. It was that cool place where you could hang out and catch the breeze. And, uh, you know, before air conditioning, it was, a, it was a nice spot. And so, in this roof, if it was anything like homes we know about in this time, there were large beams crossed with smaller beams, mixed with mud and straw and hay. 
And then at the very top, they might layer just one thin layer of tiles that you could clean a little bit easily. Well, these men go the unconventional route. They start digging a hole through the roof and eventually large enough to lower their friend down through the roof, maybe with fishing ropes and help from people inside, hopefully. And when Jesus saw all this, I mean, think about this. I mean, I heard, I've heard a raccoon fell through this ceiling one time, but I've never heard about a person being, being lowered down through this ceiling. Jesus saw all this. Some, all of a sudden, you know, the, the, there's a popcorn ceiling falling in your cereal. And you know what he, you know what he says when the, when the roof opens up and a foot pops through? He says, hey, I'm in the middle of a sermon here. Right? Is that what he said? No. What is, hope you're going to pay for that roof. Is that what he said? I can't be bothered with this right now. No. Verse 5 says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, you know, as I, as I think about all four gospels that we have and all the stories in them, I, I may be missing something, but there's something I notice. I can't think of any story where Jesus casts out someone who is sincerely pursuing after him even if it's an inconvenience to him or socially costly to him. People who go after Jesus in faith are always encouraged, rewarded, or highly spoken of by Jesus in that moment. When people think, I will do whatever it takes, whatever it costs to be near Jesus, they're never rebuked by Jesus for thinking that. You notice that? That's because Jesus loves persistent faith. That's number one. Remember what I told you earlier. There's other points to be made in this story. There's more than just this. That was number one. Number two lesson we see, Jesus teaches the priority of need. He teaches priorities of need. Just as an interpretive grid for you as you study the Gospels, many times the miracle is not the story it's a setup for the real story. The purpose of the, this miracle is one of those. It's layered. Yes, it's about faith. That was real. Everything we just said was real. But primarily, it's about the authority to forgive sin. Read verse 5 through 7 with me. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I think what's jarring about this is how quickly this text just shifts. It goes from a paralyzed man being lowered through a roof to one sentence Jesus said. This is setting up what I call the woe you can't do that motif of Mark chapter 2. If you read Mark 2, it's just a handful of stories that go, whoa, you can't do that. Uh, in fact, I'll give them to you. Whoa, you can't forgive sin is today's message. I'm not titling it that, but still. Uh, next is, whoa, you can't hang out with sinners and tax collectors. Next is, whoa, you can't eat when everyone else is fasting. And next is, whoa, you can't pluck grain on the Sabbath. All right? That's chapter 2 in a nutshell. Setting up the authority clash between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, the scribes are in this story. Not a lot of story where the scribes get their shine, all right? This is it. 
I don't even, there's no Pharisees in here, just scribes. Now, a scribe does not have to be a villain. I think we read that through our lens and think, scribe, evil, not necessarily. You know, Ezra was a scribe in the Old Testament. He's got a whole book after him. He did a lot of great things. It was someone who was educated, studied the law, transcribed it, wrote commentary, and were often commissioned to record and copy legal documents. They were very much into the letter of the law. They were constitutionalists, right? Now, I want you to notice in this story what stopped them in their tracks. In all the commotion of the moment, it's that sentence spoken by Jesus, your sins are forgiven. That causes them to sanctimoniously clutch their pearls. And what I think is most interesting at that is that these scribes didn't even say anything aloud. You notice that when we read it? It says in verse 6, they were questioning where? Out loud? What does it say? They were questioning in their heart that Jesus was blaspheming God. And Jesus doesn't even let them get it out into the open. He, he responds to their thoughts. Jesus perceived in his spirit what they were thinking. Now, just imagine if I, I pointed at somebody in the middle of this sermon, said, hey, Ted, stop thinking about where you're going to lunch and pay attention. And he, and he said, he looked up and Ted was like, I was thinking about where I was going to go to lunch. Just imagine what that would be like, right? That's what happened. That's what happened. They were shocked. So why were they so upset with this? You have to understand, even if they granted the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, there, there, was, no, there was no Jewish teaching that the Messiah could forgive sin, okay? So that, that wasn't even a, a category in their mind. Think about the whole sacrificial system, everything that had to take place in Judaism to forgive sin. The slaughter of animals, the washings, the priestly system, the temples, and all of that, Jesus shows up and just bypasses all that and says, forgiven, just boom, done. And the scribes were like, who do, you, who, do you, who do you think you are? You can't just do that. Now, there's one question I always have when I read this story, and I'll confess to you, I don't think there's an answer. Just the, the ramblings of a preacher mind. If the scribes never thought those angry thoughts. If they never had that, where am I going to lunch thought in their mind, they never thought it. And Jesus then was, was not in turn triggered by them to respond the way he did. There was never the teachable moment about authority to forgive sins. Is it possible that Jesus could have stopped where he told the paralytic that his sins were forgiven? Is it possible? Now, it's likely Jesus was going to heal him anyway. I'll just put that out there. Extremely likely this was always going to end in a healing. Most stories in the Gospels, when someone shows up that needs to be healed, Jesus healed them. But I'd like us as an mm, academic exercise, a theological exercise, if you will, to ponder on this thought for one moment. Would we be disappointed with the story if Jesus completely wiped this paralyzed man's slate of sin clean, gave him absolute assurance of his eternal life from the mouth of Jesus, but chose not to heal his body. I think Jesus is teaching a, tri a triage of priority here. 
Listen, let me say it clearly. Jesus cares about our bodies. Jesus cares about your physical pain, our sickness. He does. We are not only spiritual beings. If anyone ever tells you we are just a, we are just a spirit with a body, no, no. God made us spiritual and physical beings. And in the resurrection, you're going to get a body back. You'll have a body longer than you'll, have a, uh, you'll be a spirit. But there is no greater priority than our spiritual needs. And we don't like to talk about that. You get 80 years on this earth if you're lucky and careful with your physical body. But after death is the beginning of, listen, eternity. How long is eternity? Pretty long. And the 80 years on the front, here's the key, here's the kicker. The 80 years on the front determines the eternity on the back. That changes the way we do this little 80-year stint here, doesn't it? The most relevant question is not whether you are a sinner. The question is, are your sins forgiven? That's the key. Because I'll just save you the time. You are a sinner. We are. All of us are. That's not the question. The question is, are your sins forgiven? If your sins are forgiven, there is no fear in judgment. It's like going to take a test with the, the teacher's answer key in your back pocket. No fear. There's no fear. I, just, I think it's important that we consider that because I know the temptation is to read this story and hear that the man was lowered through the roof, and when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, to say, oh, man, what a letdown. Is that the best you can do, Jesus? I mean, this guy's got felt needs here. Aren't you going to deal with his greatest need, his paralysis? But you see, church, that's it. Jesus is such a great teacher. He's even teaching us here today the forgiveness of your sins is your greatest need. It is. It's so great that he died on a cross to ensure that it could happen. Jesus loves persistent faith. He teaches priority of need. And lastly, number three, Jesus possesses the authority of God. He possesses the authority of God. Well, Jesus would heal this man both spiritually and physically. Read from the end of verse 8 through 12 with me. He said, why do you question these things in your hearts? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately and picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. There's something called a falsifiable claim. I want to... Uh, teach you this phrase if you've never heard it before. If you have, bear with me. Anybody heard of that? A falsifiable claim? Some of you have. Good. It's a, it's a claim, a statement of, of truth or a statement of fact that you could, with evidence, prove to be verifiably false or true. It's provable. So, for example, if I said three billion light years away, 
underneath the surface of an unnamed planet that we can't see on our satellites, there is a peanut butter jelly sandwich sitting in that low crater of that planet. There's no realistic way that you could prove that wrong, right? It's unlikely that it's true, but I could always come back and say, yeah, but I had a dream that it's there, or I just know, or God told me. But there's no way to falsify that claim unless you do what? You either go to that planet, you check that crater and find yourself a little peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or you get a really good satellite and you can go right to the spot and we agree that's the spot and we look and we prove, right? That's the only way. But you can't do that, so that's called a non-falsifiable claim. Jesus recognizes in this moment he has made an unfalsifiable claim. He says, your sins are forgiven. Now, how could a person know that right away? How could you know? You can't. You see, you can't see forgiveness on your skin. You know, your hair doesn't change colors when you get forgiven. There's no laboratory DNA test results, you know, send it off to 23andMe, oh, you're Scottish, Irish, and forgiven. There's none, that doesn't happen. Forgiveness happens in the mind of God. That's where it happens. In the courtroom of God's justice is where it happens. So Jesus responds to the scribes who've questioned his authority. This is why he says, so that you may know. Because guess what? He wanted them to know. He wanted them to know. When I read this story, I went back in my mind to our Elijah series, and I thought about that moment when the prophets of Baal are out there. You know, they're just slicing themselves, and they're screaming at the sky, and they're, and they're dancing, and they're, you know, doing the, the jitterbug, and they're trying to get Baal to come down and show up and create fire. And what, is, what does Elijah do? He gets down and says, so that they would know that there's a God in Israel. And he prays, kaboom, fire. You know what similar prayer that David prayed? when he went up against Elijah, so that they'll know there's a God in Israel. Very similar here. Jesus says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sin. Then he turns to the paralytic, pick up your bed and go home. And instantly, this isn't a cheap trick. This isn't Todd White lengthening the leg an inch on the street, okay? This is for real. All right? He says, pick up your bed and go home. Boom, atrophied legs become full, muscular. Ligaments are created. Nervous systems are restored. Boom, and he stands up, and he walks, picks up his bed. He walks out, probably waving just like this. Thank you, everybody. It's been good. I appreciate the charity. It was good. I appreciate that. That's, and he was shouting and screaming hallelujah. What did Jesus do? He attached a physical indicator to a spiritual pronouncement. When a smart man, uh, when a man who's been paralyzed skips on home, we know that what Jesus said was accurate. It lends credence to the statement that he made that his sins are forgiven. Jesus was in a battle for authority, and he, he's going to be. You know, the older I get, the, the, the more I realize that a lot of life is battling for authority, isn't it? 
Someone says, shut down your business, wear a mask, get a vaccine, and stay six feet away from someone. And, and a right response would be, on what authority? Right? When a police officer writes you a ticket, why can they do that? They can. If you do something wrong, they can write you a ticket. Why? Because they have authority in your life. If Congress passes a bill, maybe I should say when. When Congress passes a bill to raise your taxes, uh, they are taking money from your check against your will. I guarantee you're thinking, can they do this? Teachable moment for every kid who's a teenager and they get their first job, and all of a sudden they see, it's like money just peeling off of their check. Like, what? What is happening? I work for this money. Right, exactly. This is an authority question. When I say, you need to repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ, you might say, why? Why is that? Well, that's an authority question, isn't it? And that's when I've got to go to my bag of authority. Is the answer, because I said so? Is that the answer? I might say, because I believe in the Bible, which is my authority, accurately portrays Jesus' statement to repent and believe, and I believe Jesus was given all authority from heaven, from God. And I believe that there is a God who exists, who made everything and created me, and he has all authority over his creation. That's my authority. That's what gives me the ability to say the things that I do. So Jesus does this miracle, yes, to heal a man. We know Jesus was compassionate. He loved people. He had a, a desire to heal the hurting. But don't miss what this is. He wanted to show the scribes he was the authority. How could Jesus forgive sins in the Old Testament? Uh, says that that's God's job. Well, because Jesus was God in the flesh, fully endowed with all authority from heaven. Last week, we, we said that as you walk with Jesus, you do so in the light of the fact that he's a king. We talked about that. He's approved by God. He's able to defeat temptations and abstain from sin. He's a preacher of the word with the message, repent and believe. And this week, we add, we tack on to that. He has the authority to forgive sin from God himself. Jesus can forgive your sin. And as you walk with Jesus... You go directly to him. He has full authority to forgive, heal, and pardon. So let me ask you this now as we close. Do you treat Jesus like he has all authority? Did you know Jesus has more authority than the police, the Congress, the president, the courts, anything? Do you believe that? I mean, really, though, do you really believe that? That's why we call him King of Kings, Lord of Lords. If it was written today, we might say President of Presidents or uh, Supreme Court Justice of Supreme Court Justices. You know, we might, whatever the high authority at the time, we would say, yeah, but he's a step above that. There is no higher authority than Jesus Christ. He is Lord. And the hard part about all of this is that the payday of living like this doesn't come on this side of death all, all the time. The real payday comes on the other side. And that brings us back to the first point, which is faith. 
you have to live by faith if you're going to follow Jesus. You have to live in a world with kings and presidents. But by faith, you believe that there is a high king of heaven on the throne who is ultimately the final authority. It takes faith to live like that, doesn't it? But that's the crux of walking with Jesus, that you live by faith in him whom you have not seen. So as you walk with Jesus, do so in the the light of the fact that he desires your passionate faith. He will not cast you out. Even if you tear the roof off to get to him, he will not cast you out. But he also desires that you treat him as the one with all authority in this life, even to forgive your sin. And that privilege of forgiveness that he gives to you is intended to be used. That privilege that he gives, the forgiveness of sin, he wants you to use it to call out on him regularly, to forgive you by his grace and on his own authority. Pray with me.